I woke up that morning knowing it was going to be a good day. I didn't compete until like 1.30 or something, but I was up at like 5. And I was out on the balcony. I could tell it was going to be a good day. How could you tell? Just felt it. The feeling you just have that day, you just know it's a special day. Later that very day, at the 2016 Rio Olympics, fencer Daryl Homer would win a silver medal. Now he's gearing up to fence in Tokyo, with hopes of making it back to the podium. If he wins an individual gold, he'll be the first American male saber fencer to accomplish that feat. So he's preparing in a way that hopefully gives him the same feeling he had on that balcony four years ago. I'm putting stuff into myself now for the Olympics, right? I'm talking to myself now, every practice, every workout. When I'm resting, I'm just telling myself I can do it, trying to make sure that I can handle my emotions in a variety of different situations, whether it's fencing or personal. You practice every day on the little things, and then at the big moments, it shows in a big way. For those big moments in Tokyo, Daryl's preparing himself to get into a pre-match state that he describes as meditative. You're in a space where you are, you know, I hate to use the word, but you're ready to kill, but you're just, it's a calm, it's a calm, and it's a zen, because if you go out too amped up, it's not good either. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often need to get into a state where I'm ready to kill. But being in a calm, zen place, well, that sounds like a place I'd definitely like to be. That's why I wanted to talk to Daryl ahead of the summer games. He mentioned being able to control his emotions. And if I'm being honest, I don't always have the best handle on my emotions. Stress, anger, anxiety. These things can send me into a tailspin more quickly than I like to admit. Well, as you'll hear from Daryl and his coach, Peter Westbrook, there's no time for that in fencing. Fencing may look like it's just about having fast reactions, but as you'll hear, it's just as much about having the right reactions. That means not reacting automatically to your fear or your nerves or your anger, but having enough self-control to see what's in front of you with a clear head and to respond constructively or even creatively. If Daryl can figure out how to do that while a dude across from him tries to stab him, well, then there just might be hope for the rest of us who could use that type of self-mastery in everyday life. I'm Clay Skipper, and this is Smarter, Better, Faster, Stronger, a GQ podcast that goes inside the minds of some of the world's top Olympians and their coaches, trainers, and psychologists. I'm hoping to figure out how, on a stage where everyone's at their physical peak, the world's top athletes get a mental edge. Today, we're talking to Daryl Homer, an Olympic fencer. Before we jump into his story, here he is giving a little background on the different fencing disciplines. There are three different weapons, foil, saber, and epee. The way I like to describe it, foil is the one you see in the parent trap. So, you know, the hand's up in the back, and you only can hit with the point, and you can hit the front of the jacket and the back of the jacket. Epe, the entire body is the target. It's the slowest of the weapons, but most explosive. You only can hit with the points as well. Saber, the one I do, is more like Zoro. You can hit anywhere from the waist up, and you can hit with any part of the blade. So that's the only weapon you can do slashing with. Did you pick that because it's like Zoro? The program I started in the Peter Westbrook Foundation was started by a man named Peter Westbrook. He was a saber fencer and also an Olympic bronze medalist. So he was a saber fencer. Naturally, he took all the older and stronger kids to saber. So when I started 11, you always start in foil, but I always saw the older kids and saber seemed a bit more virtuoso to me. So that was always something that I kind of wanted to try out. So I switched to saber from foil at 12 years old and I haven't looked back since. I'm glad you brought Peter Westbrook because I watched the video you did with the Players' Tribune. Yes. And he said something really interesting in there where he talks about the ups and downs of fencing yep. prepare you for the ups and downs of life. Yep. Like your opponent comes up, you got to figure out how to beat them, you got to come up with a solution. 
Fencing, honestly, is a condensed life, right? The same things you have to do in life. You have to prepare on a high level. You have to handle pressure. You have to make split-second decisions. You have to handle your emotions. You know, it's very interactive. It's an open skill sport. Fencing has really formed me into the person I am today. I've seen myself grow from a kid with braces, super skinny, to a man that I think is confident, can express himself, can control his emotions. Okay, so I'm curious what the first lesson fencing taught you was. The first lesson fencing taught me was to control my emotions or that I had to learn to control my emotions. I would lose, I'd freak out, I'd smash my stuff, I'd cry. Just really, really emotional. And I think fencing taught me to handle losing, but also how to handle losing control of my emotions because a lot of times people do lose because they lose control of their emotions, right? Like halfway through the process, the thought enters your head that you might lose and you just kind of can't handle it. So I think fencing has really honed that ability in me. So what do you do if that thought creeps up? Yeah, uh, in the middle of a match, you know, you just keep focusing on the touch in front of you and what you can control. And I'm talking about their matches, you're losing 11 to 3, and you have to try to keep going, not give up, and sometimes you win those matches. It's like a boxing match, right? You could be down the first three rounds, but you got to keep going. You can't give up. That's what fencing is to me. Yeah, there was that clip in the Players' Tribune video where they showed a clip of you as a young fencer, and it looked Mm. like you uh, got upset with a call. I don't remember what it was. Always. I still get upset with calls. (laughs) Always, always, always. When I was a kid, always. Because I wanted to learn more about Daryl as a fencer, I called up Peter Westbrook, the man who started the foundation where Daryl got his start. Peter says he remembers his first impression of 11-year-old Daryl, who he describes as just a little wild. I look at him, I see physically gifted, emotionally a little bit wild, but that's a good thing because in order to be great in sports, in order to be great in anything, you really can't be conservative. You gotta be a little wild, that's good. A little more too wild for us, but that's still good. If the first lesson fencing taught Daryl was to control his emotions, that's because Peter knows the importance of staying calm on the fencing strip. He's a fencing legend himself, having competed in five Olympics and having won a bronze medal in 1984. To control your emotions in fencing is essential, just as to control your emotions in life. Same thing. If you can't control your emotions, every touch against you, you blow up. Every touch against you, you can't function. Every touch against you, you can't see your way out of a paper bag. You have to be able to look at life, look at fencing. I made a mistake. I got beat. How do I fix it? How do I improve? How do I get better? If you're volatile in life, volatile in fencing, volatile in anything, you're not going to be that productive as if you were not volatile, able to see things clearly, able to make judgment to go to a higher level. Daryl says fencing's unique combo of aggression, focus, and control makes the sport like a boxing match mixed with art. You have to be very interactive with your opponent because you can be in the best shape, you can be in the best physical condition mentally, and if you're not engaging with your opponent, what your opponent's giving you, you're gonna lose the match. On one level, you have to have all this emotion. That's why we scream. I'm not sure if you've seen a fencing match, but we scream after every touch, kind of like they do in tennis matches, because there's so much emotion and focus going into just controlling every variable possible in that touch that you then have to like release that, refocus, boom. I have a lot of friends in track and field where it's like you run your race, boom, and it's just you focusing on yourself. But with our sport, we really have to understand the opponent's psychology, right? Like you might be a really strong attacker, and I might have to put you in that situation so you feel strong, eat that for a couple of times, and then I can take you into my strength. 
Huh. And it's a lot of just head games. It's a lot of knowing, okay, you like to do that. I'm going to allow you to think you're doing that and set something else up. So it's chess as well. And that's the part of the sport that I've always loved, combining like the physical aspect, right? Knowing the opponent and the chess piece where you're pulling someone through your own maze. So walk me through that. So say I'm an attacker. How would you approach that? What would you do in that it de- situation? It depends because then you, it depends on your, your <laughs> level even because there are some people who know, okay, people think I'm a really strong attacker. So they'll fake attack and do a lot of actions, right? Mm. And then I have to adjust to that and go around it because because the temptation when someone's attacking you is to attack them. But a lot of times you have to eat it and create actions to kind of put yourself in an advantageous situation. It's a very high-level yeah. chess game. Most of our training is done in a way to enable you to adjust automatically in situations. Okay, I'm showing you I'm going to attack, but you're showing me something different. I have to go around it and switch. And then you're also trying to set up actions and tactics and stuff like that as well. Do you actually train your reaction time? Because that's another thing that seems remarkable in fencing is just the, how short the reaction yeah. time is. So we take private lessons with our coaches, which are very technical, technical and physical, but mainly technical for timing, distance, speed, reaction. So literally the difference in fencing can be if you're trying to block and you're one inch off, right? If you don't have the perfect block, it can be a malparade, which means that you got hit instead of blocking the person. So you do a lot of just repetitions with your coach to make sure that your reactions are perfect when you see different things. That if someone pulls their arm back too far, you cut. If they send their arm a little bit earlier, you block instead. And you do a lot of work just to make sure that, like, those fine-tuned feelings are are there. As Daryl mentioned, he's not just training his physical reaction, but also his mental reactions. Because, as he said, the temptation when someone's attacking you is to attack them. Duh. But that response can leave him exposed. In order to guard against it, Daryl says the minutes before his match are important in helping him achieve focus and mental clarity. Before the match, I'm just keeping myself calm and reminding myself I can do it. I'm visualizing different things of the opponent. I'm visualizing my best fencing. And I'm just kind of sitting in silence. And that's where I like to be before matches. It's meditative. Like, you're in a space where you are, you know, I hate to use the word, but you're ready to kill. But you're just, it's a calm. It's a calm and it's a zen. Because if you go out too amped up, it's not good either. So can you take me inside that moment a little bit? When you say visualizing your best fencing, are you walking through moves? Or what does that actually look like? It's more about the feeling. It's the feeling you have when you know everything's going to work and the feeling you have where you're content and you're in tune with your body and you just close your eyes and you just feel that and you hold that feeling because that's the feeling you want to have in those moments. And so then you go out. You're just trying to get that feeling. Okay. Nice and light. And you score a point or the opponent scores a point. How do you bring yourself back in? Get ready for the second exchange. You know, you breathe. You close your eyes, you breathe, and you think about what you're doing next. A lot of times you're trying to figure out, did this person set me up or did I just make a mistake or did they capitalize on a mistake? What's their strategy? What are they trying to do? Because many times people don't change what they're trying to do in a match. It takes a very special athlete to handle the pressure of a match and change in between. You're just trying to put a finger on your opponent's strategy, where their head is. Can you feel when the guy across from you is scared? Yeah. But if you're not in tune with yourself and you're also afraid, it doesn't matter. That's the whole thing. If you don't have mastery of yourself, that doesn't matter. It's just two scared people fighting. I mean, it's anyone's game at that point. That's what people don't realize. Plenty of the guys, myself included, have lost matches to where the person across from was more scared. It's so paralyzing sometimes when you're afraid. When you've flown across the world and you're about to lose your first match and you have to go home and tell people you lost or you've worked so hard for something and then, like, it doesn't come to fruition. Like, that's paralyzing. That's scary. Daryl says that because fear is such an integral part of fencing, it's also one of the first things he discussed with Peter. So one of the first lessons Peter taught me is that everyone's scared. 
and that everyone pretends they're not scared. Everyone shows up and takes a really nice warm-up lesson and everyone looks really strong. <laughs> so imagine, it's like the boxer that's going up against Floyd Mayweather. Floyd's never lost. This guy knows that. He knows that. But he's still going to go through his routine. He's still going to look ferocious. He's going to look tough. But he also knows in the back of the head that Floyd's never lost. <laughs> the guy's going against Mike Tyson back in the day when he's knocking people out in 30 seconds. Like... Some of those guys were just like, they weren't even, they were just like, oh, whatever. But for the most part, people come in. You still got to get in there, do your jump. You got to do your warm-up. You got to look tough. And I think that we understand that. And you understand that intrinsically when you're in sports that everyone has a game face. One thing Peter's amazing at is like, when you are afraid, he's like, tell me, talk to me. He's like, you're scared. It's okay. And sometimes you're like, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. And he's like, no, you're afraid. But he's afraid too. And it's okay to be afraid. Fear is paralytic. Fear will paralyze you. Fencing in life, in relationships, in jobs. Fear paralyzes all of us. And once you realize everyone on the planet, every athlete, including LeBron, every athlete, Muhammad Ali, my hero, all the great Olympians, everybody has fear. You know what? All of a sudden, you don't feel so weird. All of a sudden, you're not as scared because you're thinking, I'm the only one. But when you realize so is everyone else, guess what? You don't feel so bad. Guess what? You feel a little more normal. Guess what? Oh, shoot. I can do this now. As Peter and Daryl see it, fear becomes less paralyzing when you quit trying to push it away and just accept that it's there. That acceptance may have helped Daryl at the 2016 Rio Olympics, where he won a silver medal. He describes a feeling of calm that he had in the days and moments leading up to that competition. I was very centered leading up in the last in the three months leading up to it. I just meddled at the World Championships the year before. So I was just very centered during that period of time and meditating a lot. I had my three mantras. I woke up that morning knowing it was going to be a good day. Really? I could feel that that morning. I think I woke my, I didn't compete until like 1.30 or something, but I was up at like 5. And I was out on the balcony. I could tell it was going to be a good day. What happens if you wake up and it's that day and you don't have that feeling? That's most days. You got to grind through it. Slug through and hope you find it throughout the day. Or how do you calm your nerves? Mm. On a day like that. It starts months before. You can't wake up that day and try to calm your nerves. You have to put stuff into yourself from months before of preparation. The Olympic Games is, it's not a normal experience. It's not a normal amount of pressure for someone to handle. It's a big deal. It's something that we all have looked up to our whole lives. So that moment you're preparing for for four years, really, but it's just like it peaks focus a couple months before. And almost every decision in your life that you're making is feeding into that moment. And so when you talk about the meditation and the mantras, I'm curious what that practice looks like. At the time in 2016, I was doing mindfulness meditation with a sports psychologist. So I'd listen to those tapes twice a day. I'd also just kind of talk to myself about the things that I needed to hear in order to compete on a high level. Anytime I had a fear, I would just repeat those things to myself to kind of take it away. Can I ask an example? Yeah. One of them was, out of many, you're the one. Everyone's good at the Olympic level. We all know each other. We all have competed for a long time together. So I think acknowledging that everyone's good, but that you have something special is an important step towards succeeding in anything. Is that tied to a fear you had? I mean, the fear is that everyone's good, right? Mm. That anyone can beat anyone. That's the fear. But putting something else in there or reframing that in a way and allowing myself to see that I still had a special gift regardless of how good everyone else was. So if you feel fear creeping in during a match, do you have like a breathing technique or something that helps? 
I have more mental things I tell myself, and I try to frame those things based on experiences I have that I know can trigger me to like get upset or to get paralyzed. It's really a paralysis, right? You have different things you tell yourself or that your coach tells you that kind of helps you go through it. Can I ask you to share one of those things? Like I mentioned earlier, out of many, you're the one, right? The mantra earlier. Ah. I know specifically there are certain things tactically that can happen in a match that can be frustrating for me. So I know to watch out for those things and then to kind of neutralize those things. Sometimes it's as simple as telling yourself, okay, when you feel like you want to do this, that's your nerves kicking in. Just to know like, okay, I'm getting nervous right now and I want to run and do this. I shouldn't do that because I lose when I do that. That's like my nerves. Let me flip it and don't do that. I'll show him I'm going to do it and do something else. So that strikes me as something that would be really useful off the strip too. Because you brought up mindfulness meditation. I've had a mindfulness meditation practice for like four years. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I noticed is that this is not my thought. It's from Viktor Frankl, but he talks about like between stimulus and response, there's a space and... I think he says within that space lies freedom, meaning like instead of reacting to something that happens to you, if you can bring in a pause between the thing happening to you and your response, you can actually choose how you respond. Agreed. And that's where all creativity and freedom lies. So that's the cool thing about fencing. Like a huge part of it is reaction. And people talk about that a lot, but a lot of it is that space in between. Someone showing you an open target, is it real or is it fake? And a lot of times people fall for it being real and they lose the action, right? But it's like knowing, okay, it's fake, let me fake them again or take a little bit more time to see what's happening and then score. So it is reaction, but it's having the right reaction. It's not just being fast. I always tell people, like, you could be the best athlete in the world, and if you fence a really young fencer, 13-year-old, with a really good technique, they'll beat you. Because they can create things that force you to respond in an advantageous time for them. Daryl says that having the right reaction requires him to be really in tune with how and what he's feeling. That type of calm comes from feeling like whatever happens, he's prepared for it. This is another thing his coach Peter has helped him with. Peter, again, talks about sometimes before his matches, he'd sit and imagine the worst possible things that could happen. Stuff that wasn't even rational, like, my girlfriend's going to leave me, my mom won't love me, and say things like that to himself. So it'd be like the worst possible thing, he'd imagine it all, then he'd go fence, like, oh, whatever, nothing can happen. Nothing that I haven't imagined can happen, so I can just fence freely. Peter remembers this exercise having two parts. Not only did he imagine negative outcomes, he'd also imagine how he'd build himself back up if those things did happen. To his point earlier, this made the fear of failure less scary and less paralyzing. I look at the worst fear, the worst scenario, how I got beat. And after I actually feel it, then I build myself back up. In other words, oh my God, I just got destroyed. How do I build myself up? I go to the gym, I talk to the people, I go to the club, And with all the love, I build myself up. Most of the time, the fear is actually greater than the reality, meaning that if I deal with the fear, it's not permanent, it's not going to be there forever, like the mind and emotion tells you, oh, you're screwed. Man, you're in big trouble for the rest of your life. So I tell myself, that's an illusion, that is not true. So now when you go to the tournament with the fear, it's not so insurmountable, it's not so paralytic. So whenever the fear comes, You know it's not devastating. You know it's only temporary. So get over it, baby. There is something about the expectations of others sometimes weighing you down. And I think that on that balcony, I just understood. I was at peace and I was like, whatever happens today happens. But I feel very prepared. I know I can do this. So let me just go out and do what I'm going to do. That meant even if my coach was saying things I didn't agree with, I'm just going to rock out with what I'm doing. 
and feel comfortable with that. And they said, and the Olympics is really an end of a chapter. It's the four year end. It's a bookend. So I just understood it for took it for that and said, whatever happens after this happens after this. But this is what I want to focus on right now. So when you won the silver medal, were you surprised or what was your feeling? No, I wasn't surprised, wow. but I was very grateful because I understand that I wasn't the only one there capable of meddling that day. And that sometimes special things, like you prepare on a high level, you get a bit of luck and you feel great. And then sometimes there's a little bit of extra stuff sprinkled on top of you. And that's what happened. So I think I understand that much better leaving that situation than I did before it. Everyone's good. That's the reality. People are good. Yeah. But it's like who gets completely in tune as a person and gets blessed a little bit. And so how does knowing that and sort of saying that was something I understood after as opposed to before, how does that change, if at all, your approach to hopefully be the first American never win gold. What it does is it makes me more grateful. And I think that I am more giving to other people. And it's not because you don't do it to receive, but I just understand like you're blessed a bit more when you are more selfless with other people. So if that's helping one of my younger teammates make the team, if that's giving advice to other people, if that's outside of fencing, just being gracious towards people who've done nice things to me, I think those are things that I really focus on. Um, I just try to be a good person. That's something Peter's always talked to me about, but it's taken me years to understand it. I just try to be a good person. What was the thing you didn't understand, or what's the thing that clicked? It's not even understand. It's more about, as an athlete, you're just so keyed in on what you're doing. Sometimes mm-hmm. you don't have time for other people. And I just think I try to make time for people who really matter to me, to show them and express that to them as well. And how does that connect back to the fencing? How does that help with that? It, it may sound crazy, but having a more gracious spirit as a person is going to make you more gracious in your ability to fence. And grateful and when you're more grateful with fencing more things come out like more actions more creativity versus when you're tight and locked in the room and just like training good things rarely come out so especially someone like me who's creative and has found my own set of tactics and way to work in this sport it's important for me to just feel broad and have capacity and gracious and grateful daryl says this ability to feel broad more grateful and more well-rounded isn't just something that makes him feel better it's something that actually gives him a competitive advantage against other fencers. We're fencing guys in Europe who this is this is my job, okay. But you're talking about people who live in a centralized training system, who are training 10 hours a day, whose meals are prepared for them. Like this is government subsidized sport in other countries. Million dollar medal bonuses. So it's just a different game. And you just have to realize your advantages over that. Like my advantages are that I get to do this because I love it, one, right? Two, like my history and where I'm from and what I represent to my community read my own willpower and creativity. And that's what brings me into a different place than these guys. And you just constantly have to frame things like that because these Euro guys are like kicked back. Everything's taken care of for them. They don't have to worry about going from Harlem to Brooklyn to (laughs) Chelsea and back and forth and going home and making dinner at 10 o'clock at night and waking up early to move your car. They don't have to worry about all those things. Their life is like very insulated for just this. Yeah. And that's my advantage that can be broader. How do you, because like you were saying at the beginning, now you are a professional athlete. I can understand how the pressure of that could be intense because now all your eggs are sort of in one basket. When the walls start to feel like they're closing in or it stops being fun or you stop having the joy of the play in it, do you have mechanisms in place or things you do to sort of widen that lens back up and allow yourself to, to have fun and enjoy it? Yeah, one of them is that I speak to a lot of people who aren't in sport at all. Lisa Orbe Austin, she is a career coach. We speak regularly. There's Kevin Carroll, who I speak to just about psychologically being in the right position. And he's like a a creative thought leader. So we just have a lot of conversations about how best to put myself psychologically in the spaces that I want to be in. So one of the things we spoke about was just me spending more time in nature. 
being outside more, being more broad in my approach to just preparing for things, just being a little bit more creative and allowing myself to be a little bit more open than I did in the past. Lisa and I speak a lot about imposter syndrome and how to overcome that. I speak to a lot of people who aren't anywhere associated <laughs> with sports, but yeah, who are like yeah. thought leaders in their own space. And that allows me to have a lot more breadth in what I'm doing. Also, it's just understanding now that you can take breaks and you can like live a little bit. I think for a long time, athletically, I was more concentrated and just grinding it out. And I, that's like the furthest thing I want to do now. I want to live a full life and then use that as fuel for my sport. Even though grinding it out helped Daryl win his medal in 2016, that experience made him realize that this type of singular focus was too exhausting. He decided to take a different, more balanced approach towards fencing. I think it really the catalyst was 2016 when I was like, okay, I have an Olympic medal, I have a world championship medal. These are things I wanted my whole life. Like I'm probably one of four people in the world that I compete with in yeah. my discipline who has those credentials. But then you see that's not it. For me, that was like a mountaintop moment. Like you can look around and you're like, wow, this is incredible. This is something that I dreamed about my whole life, but I never thought I was going to get really and truly like, because it's so hard to get, no one had gotten it before. And for me to do that, I was like, okay, I want to do this again and again, but the same way I just did, it's not going to work for me. It's, it'd be too yeah. exhausting. So it's a different type of journey. It's a different type of journey. And I think it's just naturally that's the space I want to be in in my life. For reference, I fenced five days a week since I was 11 years old. Through college, through me being 30 years old, I'm 30 now. It's 19 years, five days a week, inside in a gym, drills, footwork, lessons. It's a lot. It feels great to have that level of dedication to something, but sometimes you just need to give yourself. And that's why COVID, to be honest to me, was a really, it was sad that the games were delayed, but it was also welcome change because it was a full year I got to fence for fun and not necessarily think about being ready for a tournament or judging myself or like pushing myself in that capacity. Like I worked hard, but it wasn't a situation where I had pressure on me. Yeah. And that was nice. And how does your mentality or your feeling right now compared to how you felt going in 2016? Around the same. I think 2016, I was very stressed. So I medaled the world championships and then I went like a year with no good results. Mm -hmm. No good results for me, right? Just a year. And then I medaled in 2016 again. But it was like a year of disappointment. Like, how did I lose this match? Oh my God. I just had all these expectations that I was losing. I was getting frustrated. I was getting upset. I was getting, you know? Yeah. So what are your expectations going to Rio? I feel really, really good, but just a day at a time. Just a day at a time. We have a, a long preparation period. And it's a different preparation period because there are no international tournaments, right? So no one knows what everyone's doing. We don't even know if we can travel to camps yet. There's a lot of stuff that's up in the air. So I think it's just taking it a day at a time and preparing the highest level you can each day. You mentioned the expectations of others and the pressure that that can create. What have you learned about managing or curbing those expectations? The amount of times people, this is a real, this is the realest thing I'm going to say. The amount of times people <laughs> hit me with a, yo, better come back with gold, gold. And I look at people sometimes, I don't say it ever, but my, my response in my head is that's like me going to you like, yo, make sure you get that job. Got to get that job. It's going to pay you a million dollars, bro. If you don't, like, mm, don't come back. I would never put that type of expectation on anyone. So... A lot of times it's other people's expectations. What I've learned is I'll let you talk, but that doesn't mean I'm even listening to you. And that's the mask because I know what I have to do. I can't let you wanting the things you're thinking about or the things you care about permeate my existence and change how I'm going about things. So that's definitely one thing I do. I tune people out a lot of the time. But that's really tough. There's that one where we win a medal and it's like, what's next? It's like you get the job of your dreams. You achieve your goals. Something you've dreamed of forever and I ask you what's next? That's crazy. 
It's great. Just let someone just enjoy and live their life. And I just what I've understood is that most people don't have something like fencing or track and field or something that's so deeply intense that you have to give yourself your all to. So it's hard for them to understand like how personal it is in a way. Like I don't really talk. To be frank with you, I really don't like talking about the Olympics. I know how I'm gonna approach it. I'm gonna go balls to the wall, ham, whatever I need to do. I'm not gonna talk about that every day. Someone asks me about it. I know that I'm putting stuff in my head all the time because I know how bad I want it, but I'm not going to just let that eke out of me all the time. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I just have to sit with it, hold it in, and in the right moment, (laughs) you let it all out. You know, you let it all out. Appreciate you sharing some of it with us. No, thank you. I appreciate you. That's it for Daryl Homer. Obviously, I'm wishing him all the best in Tokyo. I think there are two things I'll most remember from this conversation. One is about self-control and that idea that reacting fast isn't as important as reacting right. That seems to me to be as true in life as it is in fencing, probably. Having control over our emotions means that instead of just reacting to triggers, we can actually choose how to respond to them. And the other thing that'll stick with me is hearing Daryl and Peter talk about using mantras, training, and even visualization as a way to guard against the fear of failure. This practice of reminding yourself that you can handle challenges is a way of increasing something called self-efficacy. The higher your self-efficacy, the more resilient you are in a difficult situation, whether that's trying to win an Olympic medal or just trying to get through a crazy, stressful day. Smarter, better, faster, stronger. We'll be back next week with another episode. So make sure to subscribe if you haven't, and please rate and review if you enjoyed this episode. Thanks to the Seaplane Armada team, Jessamine Molly and Justin Wright, for production, editing, and original music. Thank you to John Wilde, Sam Shuby, Jeff Gagnon, Ben Williams, and the whole team over there at GQ Sports for production. And thanks to you for listening. You can find me at Clay Skipper on Instagram or Clay underscore Skipper at GQ.com. Talk to you all next week. Thank you.